We're in Galatians 3.28 still. But I was reflecting this week on Galatians 6.15. In Galatians 6.15, three verses from the end of the book, Paul introduces, it seems, to us this extraordinary idea. He says, uh, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but only a new creation. Only a new creation. He doesn't, what is that? He doesn't talk anywhere else in the book of Galatians about it. He only, there's only one other mention of it in the Bible. Only one other time Paul mentions it. What is this thing? It's such an evocative concept. It's such a unique phrase. It's so powerful and seems so filled with meaning. But he just puts it at the end of this book. He just ta- tosses it at the end of the book. And, and he doesn't explain it at all. So I was thinking about it, it has to be this thing that, have, that he's talked so much with the Galatians about that he doesn't even have to say anything about it until just at the end, he kind of gives a little wink in his letter to the Galatians. It has to be this thing that he just talked about all the time, that through, because of what Jesus did and by the work of the Spirit, there's another creation, in it, but it's a new one. It's a Jesus creation by the work of his Spirit here with us. And that new creation, that beautiful thing, is what the book of Galatians was written to defend and to nourish and to advance the beautiful new creation. But of course, as we've seen in the book of Galatians, they have some problems with their understanding of the gospel. They have some problems with the way that they uh, conduct their manner of life now in response to the truth of the gospel. Their, their conduct is out of step with the truth of the gospel because, as we've seen, there's some, some Jewish Christian conflict entrepreneurs who have come to Galatia and told them that the social order is still the primary way to think about right and wrong. Whether you're right, whether you're doing right, whether you're a righteous person or not. That Jesus changes a lot, but he doesn't change everything. For example, he doesn't change the social relationship between Jews and Gentiles. He doesn't change the social relationship between slaves and free. He doesn't change the social relationship between male and and female. But Paul's assertion, the foundation for the beautiful new creation, is that Jesus changes everything. And so we read in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a very controversial verse. It would have been very controversial then. It's controversial today. Jesus changes everything. Does he really change? Does he change that? Does he change the relationship of male and female? Another way to ask that is, is new creation real? Or is new creation just a sort of a a, a device that Paul uses to stir up people's emotions, but it's not a real thing. Is it a real thing? As I was preparing for this sermon, I read uh, some thoughts by Pastor Tim Keller on this text. He says, this barrier, male and female, was probably the strongest barrier of Paul's day. Women were considered absolutely inferior to men, and even today, the application of this principle is the most controversial. See, when you look at these, uh, these, different, uh, these different cultural forces that are competing to be our primary and defining identity, 
we look at uh, Jew or Greek, right? Nationalism we talked about a couple weeks ago. Or slave and free. We talked about the class divisions and differences last week. Those are, those are like ideas, right? But male and female, those are people. Those are us, right? Everybody here is male and female. Which means that if Jesus changes everything, whatever he does to this part of our identity is going to be the change that we feel most deeply, most profoundly, that we may be the most bothered by. And then, of course, that means that this will be the change that most profoundly sets us free. So let's look again at Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I just want to remind you that this last bit, right, this male and female, there's no male and female, this was written in a context where this discrimination was not considered discrimination. It wasn't considered injustice by practically anyone. Last week I, I, I stated the extremely offensive uh, ancient Jewish an ancient Grecian proverb. I thank you, God, that I am a, a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank you that I'm free and not a slave. I thank you that I'm male and not female. It's terrible. They didn't, they, it didn't register to them as terrible. It wasn't locker room talk. Those were the philosophers and the statesmen in their prayers. This discrimination was not considered discrimination. But Paul here reveals the truth of the gospel that those cultural inequalities need to be dissolved. Those cultural inequalities that were taken for granted as the most fundamental facts of the social order by the people of that day, he says they are dissolved in Christ. He says, now you are one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? And, he says, you are all one in Christ Jesus, and you are heirs. If you are Christ's, verse 29, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Earlier in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says that it is those of faith, men and women, who have put their faith in Jesus, who are sons of Abraham. Ladies, you're sons of Abraham. What did that mean? Right in that culture, it meant that the son, the firstborn, the oldest son, got kind of everything. They got everything. They had all the rights. And now what Paul is saying is that all the rights of the eldest son are now equally enjoyed by the youngest daughter. All the rights of the eldest son equally enjoyed. You know... We said this last week, but I want to say it again. There was only one place in the ancient world where the, the norms of the social order were disregarded. And that place was the church. And this truth is why. Because of what Jesus did to make us all equal and to make everybody an heir. 
And we see this, this unique emphasis throughout the New Testament. I just want to rehearse a couple of the significant points in the story of Jesus' life as it was told by the first Christians. And in the early Christian uh, mission, I want you to just see a couple things that would have been very uh, embodiments of this, but very countercultural, absolutely mind-blowing and offensive to just about everybody, Jew or Greek, who was reading these things or participating in this uh, community for the first time. So we see, for example, in the story uh, that Luke tells of Jesus, in the very beginning, Luke chapter 1, we see Zechariah pitted against Mary in their responses to God's invitation. Right? Zechariah is this godly Jewish priest, and the angel of the Lord Gabriel comes and visits him in the temple while he's serving, and Zechariah, does he believe what the angel says to him? No, and he gets punished for it. And then immediately the angel, the same angel, goes to marry this teenage girl out in the sticks and gives her an even more extreme invitation, an even more surprising message, and Mary believes. A couple chapters later, we come to Luke chapter 8. And it's interesting, in Luke chapter 8, I'm finding it, it says that Jesus went out through the cities and the villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve disciples were with him, the twelve apostles, and also, Luke makes pains to point out, there were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chuzah, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So Luke makes a point of saying it wasn't just the 12 guy apostles, but that there were women who were part of Jesus' disciple band. A couple chapters later, one of our favorite stories of Jesus, I want you to think about it from a first century Jewish perspective. Uh, Mary and Martha, Jesus goes to their home, and Martha's upset because what is Mary doing? She's sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. What should she have been doing according to all cultural norms for hundreds of years, thousands of years before, right? She should have been doing what Martha's doing. When Martha goes and confronts Jesus and Mary, she doesn't expect any kickback, but Jesus says, Mary's chosen the better thing to do. Leave her alone. She can sit here and learn like the disciples of a rabbi would. A little bit later, when Jesus is raised from the dead, the first witnesses are these women named in the text. Mary Magdalene again, Joanna again, and another Mary. Three witnesses, none of whom could have appeared in any Greek, Roman, Jewish court and, been, and their testimony had been allowed. But here they are, the testimony, the witness to the resurrection of Jesus. We see the same sort of new countercultural equality in the work of Paul. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he names Yodia and Syntyche, women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. In Romans chapter 16, he names a whole bunch of women who participated in his work. He goes out of his way to highlight these. Again, these would have been 
offensive. They would have been strange, foreign, countercultural things to do. He says in verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deacon of the church at Chantria. He says in verse 3, greet Prissa. This is, uh, some of you may know her as Priscilla and Aquila. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. And you notice whose name comes first in that, which is kind of, again, extraordinary, the wife's name. A little bit later, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet uh, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. The reality of the New Testament, the reality that Paul is trying to establish for the Galatians and what all the apostles are are presenting as true about the early church is this. We are all brought to a new place. We talked about this last week. It's not that uh, women are elevated to the place of men, but that we are all brought from outside to inside. We are all brought from lowly to exalted. And in that move, from being sinners and outsiders and castaways... We are brought in by Jesus to an elevated position for all of us and made equal in that move. We are equal in Christ. So today I want to push in a little bit to prepare us for thinking about how to, how to think about the relationship of male and female now because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's think about the reality of what that equality means. What does equality in Christ mean? I want, I want to just, this is basic stuff, but I want to reflect on it, okay? So bear with me. First of all, male and female, men and women, both have the same standing before God. This might seem like underhand slow pitch stuff for you, so just bear with me for a minute. We have the same standing before God, which means that men and women both get to talk to God the way that the high priest did, the way that Jesus did. We have the same blessings from God. We have the same blessings from God. We have the same Holy Spirit at work in our lives, which means that we have the same chance, men and women have the same exact chance to be the kind of person that Jesus Christ is. Free, honest, kind, grace-filled, loving. It's not just some who get to be his disciples, but all who get to be and are called to be his disciples. Like Mary sitting at his feet. Women now can be discipled. They can be equipped. They can lead in this new thing. We have the same standing before God, the same blessings from God. We also have the same gifts from God. That means that not only can we learn and grow like, like even the 12 apostles did, but that now we can, we have the same ability, men and women, to bless others in the way that Christ did and does through the same Spirit. We can be a blessing to others. As Jesus invites all his disciples, men and women, in John 15, to abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Men and women together can bear much fruit. Again, old hat for you guys, radical novelties in the first century. And we have the same faith in the same gospel. Which means that we have the same ability to illuminate important aspects of the gospel for each other. We can share our testimonies with each other and our experiences of God in our life and insights into the scripture and we can mutually benefit from this. 
So what I want you to understand by rehearsing these things is that the richness of the gospel and the fullness of Jesus Christ and everything that the Father through the Spirit wants to give us, all of that is supplied to us by those here who surround you. Not just me. And not just me and Brian and Tony. But all that God the Father, all that Jesus Christ and all that the Spirit want to give us has been supplied to us by all those here who are with us. So if you need prayer, we have many priests, men and women, male and female. Do you need help? We have many varieties of help. We have much, many varieties of peace, joy, love, wisdom, and strength from the men and women of this church. Do you need faith? We have many insights into, the, into who Jesus is and into his word and into what he accomplished for us. Many of those insights coming from male and female in this congregation. You know, the question we're going to begin thinking about here is, what do you need to flourish as a human being? Like, right, none of us are here because we're fine. We're all here because we are lacking something that we have recognized only God can provide. He has done it. He has provided it for us in Jesus and by the work of His Spirit. And what, what, he, what we need to flourish with, we have here in the men and women of this body. Look with me again here at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. I want you to notice a little interesting detail of the text. See if you notice anything different in the phrasing of these pairings. So he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Did you notice that? A little, it's kind of a little, little thing. You'd be like, well, that's not a thing. That's not, what is that? It's actually, it's interesting. It's a reference back to Genesis 1.27. It's an exact, exact quote, male and female, of God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. How did he create him? Male and female, he created him. Why does Paul reference Genesis here at this moment? Because he wants to remind us that the, the discrimination of the social order between male and female <clears throat> overlooks a fundamental biblical truth. That we are all together made in God's image. Male and female made in the same image. And that's the image that the Spirit is at work in male and female to renew. We were made in the same image, and so the work of the Spirit is applicable to us all the same. Colossians 3, Paul says, we talked about this a little bit more last week. He says, don't lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices have, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. The Spirit is at work doing this in all of us, male and female. This is what our equality means. We all have together now what we all of us need. And this according to the plan and work of God. 
You know, for, for millennia now, what's been the primary question between uh, male and female? The primary question be, that has shaped the, the debate, the conversation between men and women on how to interact, right? The primary question from the man's point of view is, how do we keep them in their place? And the primary question from the woman's point of view is, how do we take power? How do we get out of that oppressive situation? Now those questions, you'll see them immediately. They come from the curse of sin, which God explains to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. This is where he explains what the curse of sin is going to mean. And it's this. He says to Eve, your desire is going to be to control your husband. Your desire is going to be to control your husband, but he shall rule over you. How do we keep them in their place? How do we take power for ourselves and escape this? And we see this exact thing played out just over the course of the next chapter. By the end of chapter 4, one of Cain's descendants, a guy named Lamech, is recorded there as threatening his multiple wives. For some indiscretion, he's threatening physical violence against them. We see this. They're, they're trying to do something that he doesn't like, and he rules over them. And this is the dominant mode for millennia. What was supposed to be mutual care became, because of sin, who gets to be the boss and who's in charge? Friends, those are curse questions. Those are curse questions. They're not new creation questions. Those are curse questions. New creation questions, that's fundamentally this. What is the Spirit working on? Not who gets to be the boss, but who gets to bless the most? How can I help the new creation flourish? That's a new creation question. Flourishing. That's what the Spirit is at work in our lives doing Flourishing is what the Spirit invites us, a new thing that the Spirit invites us to define ourselves by. Flourishing is when a diverse ecosystem works together in such a way that the whole thing thrives according to design. When a diverse system works together so that the whole thing thrives according to design. Have you been to the domes in Milwaukee? Have you been to the domes? We love the domes. My family's on spring break, and my wife's only request slash demand was whether we go to the domes or not. She said, I'm going to the domes. And this is the best time of the year to go to the domes, because it's the worst time of the year to be in Wisconsin. It's so grody out there. But we love the domes. And you know what? The church is supposed to be like the domes. The church is supposed to be this place where we come in out of the cold and harsh realities of life in a fallen world and we come into a functioning ecosystem. And you know what's the first thing you do when you step into those domes? You stop and you breathe. You, don't, you never realized how tense you were just getting there. You never realized how much you needed that fresh, different kind of fresh air. This is the Spirit's hope for us, that we would grow, that we would become healthy, that we would thrive. 
And I'm not talking about, we're not talking about here, we're talking about new creation. We're not talking about self-actualization. See, it's a little bit of a different thing. It's not about me. It's not self-referential. It's about trusting the work of the Spirit between us. It's a mutually dependent health. God's heart and Christ's goal and the Spirit's work is our flourishing. All we have in Christ and all we have from Christ, male and female, together, is for that purpose. What other purpose should we have (laughs) when we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ? What other purpose should we have than that which is the Father, Son, and Spirit's purpose? Here's what I want you to understand most of all this morning. That in Christ now, we are made equally necessary for the flourishing of all of us. We are made equally necessary for the flourishing of all of us. That means that the Holy Spirit is working equally through male and female so that all male and female in Christ can flourish. The only question for the new creation community is again, not how do we keep the social order standing, but how do I serve new creation? How do I serve the flourishing, the work that the Spirit is doing in this church? And I want to suggest something to you from, of course, that's what Galatians is about. That's what all the the Bible is about. But I want to suggest a model for you from the Old Testament, from the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs, right after the Psalms, is 31 chapters long. And the book of Proverbs is, is kind of interestingly set up. The whole book is written to a young man, by a king to a prince. The whole thing is written to this young man, And yet, by the time we get to chapter 31, what's chapter 31 all about? It's all about this wise, godly woman. She's an amazing woman, right? You you go and you read the description of uh, the Proverbs 31 woman, and there's never been a culture that held that out as the ideal for womanhood. It is the least repressive Description. It's a person who's flourishing. It's a person who's flourishing. Where did the Proverbs 31 woman come from? It came from a man who learned wisdom in Proverbs 1 to 30. Her flourishing is the fruit of his wisdom. Right? A Proverbs man, a wise man, that wisdom, his wisdom, is seen in his flourishing wife, is what Proverbs is saying. Young man, did you get it? Well, how's your wife? In general, we can extrapolate that a a Proverbs man, a wise man, makes space for her flourishing. Now, what's really interesting here is where that where did he learn such things from? Well, of course, much of the book is uh, the king talking to his son, sharing proverbs from himself and other sources. But what's really interesting is that even in chapter one and several times throughout the early chapters, the king says, "Here's lady wisdom. Listen to her. 
And in fact, in the first verses of the book, he says, Son, listen to your father's instruction and do not reject your mother's insights and teaching. So why is the Proverbs man so wise? In part, because he listens to wise women. The Proverbs 31 woman flourishes because of the Proverbs man. And the Proverbs man flourishes because of the Proverbs 31 woman in his life. And so the book of Proverbs gives us this extraordinary vision for male and female flourishing, but it's not the only place that we see such things. This is Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And every time he says the word you, I want you to read male and female. To this end, we always pray for you, males and females, that our God may make you, male and female, worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve you, men and women, have for good and every work of faith that you do by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, men and women, and that you, male and female, may be glorified in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's heart for you, for all of us, is flourishing. So friends, the question for us is, how can I help us flourish? How can I help us flourish? How can I serve the new creation? You know, there's this lie in the world, right? Well, it's not necessarily a lie. It's a lie for us. It's a truth in the world. If some are going to flourish, what does that mean? About others are going to have to diminish. Right, if they're going to get, I'm going to have to lose. If they're, going to, if, if, if they're going to have, then I'm going to have to give it up. Because flourishing requires resources and strength and gifts and space. And, but listen, in Christ, we have infinite supplies of this. And in Christ, it's a whole different math. <laughs> in Christ, the more we give and the more others have, the more we have. The more you give and the more they have, the more you have. Isn't that great? The more you give, the more they have, the more you have. You know why this works? Is because we're an ecosystem. And so there's no grace that you share that you don't benefit from because you're a part of it. How can I help us flourish? If you would turn with me to The next book over, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. This is a core text for our church, a core text for most churches. Because it describes the operation, the purpose and function of the local church. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. And again, I want you to make sure that you include male and female in all of the we's and you's, okay? So he says in verse 11 that that Jesus gave the church, these leaders, he gave the church this structure, and this is the purpose of the church organization, 12, to equip the saints, male and female, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all, male and female, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we, male and female, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Now here's the, really the key verse. From Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Raise your hand if you're a joint with which this body has been equipped. Raise your hand. Everybody's hand. When each part is working properly, the whole body makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The, what Paul is saying here in verse 16 is that the more that we show up, the more that we participate, the more that we contribute to the church, the more we benefit. We benefit because when you show up, the truth, the Holy Spirit, the gifts bless you. I mean, not all the time. But a lot. And because when you show up and your, and, and your presence and contribution and voice is given for the flourishing of the church, which again is not all the time that you show up, but that puts health into a system designed to keep you healthy. In Christ, we are made equally necessary for the flourishing of all of us. God supplies what we need through all of these who are here with us. Now there's a lot of different questions that you might have about the way that male and female, men and women should interact in the church. And those are good questions, but they're outside of the context of this passage. But I feel like it's a little bit of a, of, of a dodge to not ask this question. Then, So who gets to be in charge? back in the curse questions, but this is a personal, this is, this is uh, my, my opinion on this, my view on this. I think this is a very boring question. To which you all say, that's because you're in charge. <laughs> <laughs> to which I say, I don't know if you would call this being in charge. <laughs> As the church is a volunteer organization, right? Any one of the 20 people who are involved in making the Sunday service work who decides to go AWOL, right? I, got, I can't do anything about it, and it's all a problem, right? So anyways, you think, okay, who gets to be in charge? I think this is a boring question. Janisha and I have talked about this in our relationship. I don't want, I've told Janisha this, I don't want Janisha to submit to me. I want her to love me and to work for my flourishing just as I'm going to work for her flourishing because I love her. But if she has wisdom, if she has gifts, if she has strength, I want it. I want those things. Right? Don't submit to my dumb ideas. Help me out. <laughs> right? So there are times when in wisdom, because I'm trying to be a Proverbs man, I ask her to decide. I say, honey, I, I don't know. I would like you to decide. And there are times when she, in wisdom, trying to be a Proverbs 31 woman, says, I don't know. I just need you to decide. I need you to lead here. Which, that's great, because we trust each other. We can trust each other. You kind of have to anyways. <laughs> 
And I say I share that to give some backstory to my philosophy as your pastor. As a pastor of this church, whatever submission means, ladies, it doesn't mean sit on your gifts. I want all the gifts that Holy Spirit has provided to this congregation, I want all of them available and operating as much as possible. All the wisdom, all the strength, all the grace, all the energy that we have from the Spirit of God, I want that available to us and present, as present as possible. And so I pray for godly, healthy, strong, gifted, mature, passionate men. And I pray for godly, healthy, strong, gifted, mature, passionate women. I know that the subject of male and female is going to continue to uh, be a problem. The Genesis 3 questions are going to continue to operate in the world, and that is going to bleed into the church. That is going to shape the new creation. And all of us, male and female, we're all sinners. We're all humans. We make bad choices. We have hard experiences in our lives. We have different personalities, and we live in a fallen culture. So even the, the, our best our, if we have the best answers to these questions imaginable, how we're going to put them into practice is still going to be full of problems. But like Paul ended Galatians, I want to end and just say, but just so we all agree, what matters is a new creation. What matters is the domes. What matters is that the church is this flourishing ecosystem in the middle of a crumbling world. And that has to start with the gospel. That has to start with the gospel that we are absolutely equal in our standing before God. The gospel that says that there's more to it. That we are absolutely equal in our significance to what the Spirit wants to accomplish. And therefore in our significance to each other. We need each other. In order for me, for you, for them to be well, to be whole, to be healed, to get discipled, equipped, and seasoned, and mature. All the things that God has appointed the church to do, we need each other. To be what we are called to be, friends, it's all hands on deck. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the beautiful vision that you give us of human flourishing. And Lord, we'd love to live in that place. And we can't wait till that day when our faith in you and in that promise becomes sight. But until then, Lord, we entrust ourselves to your spirit. We entrust ourselves to your love. That your word has guided us and will guide us in the path of wisdom together, in the path that leads to freedom, in the path that leads to flourishing, to love, to joy, and to peace. And so we thank you for these things, Lord, and, and as Paul writes, we ask that they would be ours still more and more and more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.